You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are currently playing at, or coming soon, to Film Scene. Our lineup includes the animated film... The Iron Giant, which plays this Saturday, May 9th at 10 a.m. and Thursday, May 14th at 3 p.m. These screenings are a part of the Picture Show, a family and children's series presented by Midwest One Bank. Next, we'll be discussing Seymour, an introduction, a new documentary by Ethan Hawke. Seymour, an introduction has its last screenings at Film Scene tomorrow, May 7th at 5.30 and 7.30 p.m. Finally, we'll be discussing Clouds of Sils Maria, a new film by Olivier Assayas featuring Juliette Binoche, Kristen Stewart, and Chloe Grace Moritz. Clouds of Sils Maria opens at Film Scene this Friday, May 8th. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbeck, Programming Director of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. And Changmin Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Changmin. Hello, everyone. I'm Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's Executive Director. I should also mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film. The Iron Giant has a reputation for making grown men cry including NPR's Stephen Thompson, who once confessed to watching the film three times while it was still in theaters, just so he could have a good cry. <laughs> Chong Min, I'll admit that I shed a few tears while I watched this film. Did you? And are you man enough to admit it? Um, no, I didn't. But I'm sorry for that. I don't know. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I've, I've grown out of that period. But I mean... <laughs> You've grown out of sentimentality. Sort of. I didn't cry either, but I, but I, I mean, it was a. It You're was not a grown man. It was Catherine. a near thing. <laughs> I mean, it was thing. a beautiful <laughs> animation film, I yeah. think. But I like The Incredibles better. But let's introduce <laughs> this film first. So, set in the 1950s Cold War context, the Iron Giant tactfully plays with our imagination of the epoch without losing its effervescent fun for its mostly young audience. The story begins with a boy named Hogarth Hughes in man. He is being raised by his single mother that is always busy working to sustain the two of them. One day when watching a crazy Cthulhu cartoon, he finds out that the TV antenna suddenly malfunctions. He climbs up the roof and spots traces of unusual activities. Left by a giant robot. Then he embarks on his fantastical journey with a kind-hearted robber who has an air of delicacy and fragility. Before a certain moment, the image of the giant robot is basically a post-war invention, most specifically a Cold War invention. The first widely popular mecha, which is the word for the giant robot in Japanese, is Tetsujin uh, 28 Go, introduced in 1956, almost contempor- uh, contemporaneous with the story word of the Iron Giant. Later, of course, the giant robot basically become, became the symbol of the Japanese anime culture. The most famous ones are the Gundam's franchise and the sleek athletic evangelions in Neo Genesis Evangelion, possibly the most influential animated television series ever produced. Basically, we are seeing a proliferation of robots in contemporary Hollywood. Transformers are being churned out. Pacific, uh, Pacific Rim has all the killing machines positioned to defend humanity. It is kind of nostalgic to return to this simply primitive model. Uh, the Iron Giant clumsily hides in the forest and swallows all the Iron-made appliances and vehicles. It has a quaint quality that most of the robots nowadays don't have. A proper description might be he's a good boy with the potential of turning into batshit destructive automaton. Leah and Catherine, let's talk about your first impressions. And then I want to know if once upon a time you had a robber dream. <laughs> um, okay, so can a robot dream? 
Like yeah. I dreamt of a robot in my sleep while sleeping? No, like... Or like I, fan- like I had a fantasy of a robot. I just like... Did, did you want to like operate a robot when you were a kid? That kind of thing? Operate a robot. I mean, like remote control cars were really important to me. And the <laughs> kinds of commercials that I would see... Um, for like Radio Shack that would often feature remote control cars that were just like speeding, you know, like through rivers and then on land and could flip over and keep speeding along um, kind of always uh, pulled me in. And I, and I, and then I had a remote control car and it doesn't go as fast as you think that it's going to go. And the, <laughs> and the batteries always die after like 30 minutes of playing with it. So that's as much as I know about robots. I think growing up, I definitely had a more um, immobile, uh, you know, plaything. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was definitely like a Barbie girl, um, and yeah, just living in a Barbie world, living in a Barbie world, <laughs> everything. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I was not, I don't think, particularly attached to the robot idea, but like my nieces now. Mm-hmm have robots all over the place. They have like little remote controlled like T-Rexes and dogs and Really? Yeah, I mean it's like a total thing now to have Do they little... have one of the flying drones too or is that the next No, level? I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, remember, well like in Force Majeure when the family's just like playing with the drone suddenly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is this what families do now? <laughs> no, not that I know of, but I mean it's been a while since I've seen them, so maybe they have like four drones. Um but yeah, that I've, uh, definitely. The, I remember the little robot T Rex that every once in a while, like at Thanksgiving, you'll just hear a little roar, and the little robot T Rex will come out into the living room. <laughs> <You're> like, <"All> <laughs> right. <laughs> so basically, this film is a product of you know post Transformer age in a certain sense, right? Sure. I mean, I'm not super familiar with Transformers. Um, do they have the same? I mean. Like giant, I'm thinking of giant robot references now in my memory. And like uh, Power Rangers, don't they jump into a giant robot oh, yeah, when, exactly. with their powers collected? Yeah. Um, and that was always like an ambiguous relationship to me between like the humans operating the robot and the robot itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but Transformers are just like robots in and of themselves slash right. cars, mm-hmm. correct? Um, yeah, that's all I've got in the robot scene. I wasn't really concentrating on him as a robot. I was concentrating him as a like like a semi salient friend, much like a pet dog. Like when we talked about Hagen, <laughs> where it's like you think maybe you know what it's thinking, but you're never quite clear. Like it's never entirely clear. You're always projecting a little bit your own consciousness on it. But your dog wouldn't shoot out, you know, a death ray to you. No, but like in, but like in White God, right? Yes. The whole issue is like if the dog gets trained differently, it can become a killing machine essentially, and you don't yeah. know if it will, like, which direction it's going to go in, depending on its training, and then just depending on some, like, your hope for its soul, which becomes a big theme in this movie. This, like, that the you know the dog slash robot has a soul that will recognize humanity. Well, and it's funny because this this uh, Iron Giant uh, is designed for a specific purpose, right? I mean, and and that purpose is kind of thwarted by his awakening into into his like kind of state of unknowing himself, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and then therefore has to make a choice about what what he is, like whether or not he's decided that he is what he's designed to be, which mm-hmm. is like a weapon and. Or if he is the way he woke up, which mm-hmm. is like kind of a yeah semi sentient, uh, moral soul soulful <laughs> creature. The, did we learn the origin story of the Iron Giant like within the movie, or were we just supposed to assume it was designed by like the Soviets or something? No, uh, the we, film didn't specify. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. He, we know inventor. he's like. It seems that he's designed as a mm-hmm. an ultimate kind of killing machine. Yes. Um, but yeah, we don't know exactly where he came from, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I don't, it's never spelled out. And sometimes I, I like, I was wondering, like, is he supposed to be a space robot? <laughs> is he from space? Is he an alien robot? Oh, yeah. Um, because that technology was advanced. For, yeah. 
well, or even the Soviets in, in 1957, <laughs> especially the Soviets. <laughs> but I'm curious. So, me, can I go back to some of this information that you're you're saying that sure. in in the Cold War, J- Japan kind of has giant robot robot uh, characters and motifs. Yeah, is this similar to the type of like giant monsters that are a reaction yes, because- to nuclear nuclear warfare, or is it? Are those yeah. like all related? Yes, I think so because you have to have giant robots to fight giant monsters in their culture or in their cultural imagination. So, oh, okay. so I mean, giant robots were first invented to you know defend Japan as a country because I mean Japan didn't uh, have their own army after the Second World War, you know, right? Because of uh, the agreements they signed with the United States and other countries. So, I mean, they have to have something that is powerful enough to, uh, you know, to defend all these outer influences or, you know, just the nuclear threat in a sense. So they invented fictional giant robots yes. to like assuage to, their, to their vulnerable their, fears, yes. their fears of vulnerability. Yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, so since we are all... Uh, we are talking about the Cold War t- context. Let's, you know, uh, talk about the ridiculous animation short uh, inserts in this film. Because, for for example, duck and cover in which yeah. kids are being taught that ha- hiding under tables can save them from the nuclear destruction. How so? How does the Cold War context play out in this film? Like, because I mean, we we do have the crazy FBI guy kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, is that, I wonder how accurate that is. Is that like the big turning point in American, well, I guess it is. We know the military industrial po- complex is like this Cold War thing where essentially imminent threat all the time, much like terrorism today, authorizes government agencies to act however they feel is appropriate. And it's usually, it seems like acting out of fear and in attempts to um, have total and complete power in ways that are, you know, inappropriate for any single entity to have. So I guess, I mean, it's kind of, I think they're trying to play up that, like this is the origin of that. Um, well, it seemed control. to me that um, we have the two, I mean, embodiments of maybe like a Cold War mentality, right? Um, so the crazy FBI guy is the like preemptive strike guy. Mm-hmm. Um and then the Iron Giant is the purely defensive tool, right? Mm-hmm. Like that it can harness all of the forces, but only <laughs> in defense. <laughs> um, so I think that those are just like kind of these twin mm-hmm. like personas of the, but the second persona is, is like such a, I mean, it, it's such an amalgam of, of technologies and forces mm-hmm. and all of these different things that, um, that they made it into this robot. Um, that that's what I sort of was thinking about when I was watching it is that of course this FBI guy is like this war hawk who's mm-hmm. like, we better launch the missile now, you know, <laughs> and uh, and might as well do it because we're obviously under threat. We don't understand, but we're under threat. Yeah, you know. Well, the preemptive strike guy is more about a certain kind of nineties or two thousand kind of mentality in that sense, right? Because like, oh, we have to, you know, send our troops to a certain country that might have some lethal yeah. weapons, that kind of, you know, mentality. That's so, true. Yeah, it definitely reverberates through time. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, uh, I mean he never says like, let's start a proxy war instead. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's pretty bold, though, to have the Americans be the bad guys, yeah. right? Like, that's well, it's pretty it's a shrewd or, move in know, this film. Or, you know, secret agents are the bad guys. That's the usual narrative, you know, in a sense. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, but, like, I want to talk about, uh, you know, Brave Bird's uh, filmography because I was surprised to l- see that this film didn't win the Academy Award for the Best Animation Picture, but then I found out the award didn't exist back back in 1999. So, really? Yeah. So Shrek was the first winner in this category. So I think I want to talk about this from another direction since Brad Bird did win this award twice with The Incredibles and Ratatouille. So which one is your favorite, including the... Iron Giant, and how would you rank them? Because I think that's a valid question to ask. I don't know that I've seen Ratatouille, Ratatouille from start to finish. I've seen like long stretches of it, 
Um, I know that I'm supposed to love The Incredibles, but I feel like when I was finally watching it at some point, I was like half distracted. So at this point, I'd have to be like The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, just because of how I've seen them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have not seen Ratatouille, so uh, but I love The Incredibles. I thought that was super fun. Um, so I would, I would have to say the Incredibles and Iron Giant, but I really was astonished by how much like I was into and invested in, uh, the Iron Giant. I thought this is probably one of the best animated films I've ever seen. So, I mean, that's saying something, I guess, but maybe, (laughs) so, but certainly the Incredibles has this place in my mind also for being just like super funny, super, super funny. Um, anyway. Mm, my top choice would be The Inter- Incredibles for, I mean, that's a film that that probably is one of the first films um, I've seen made by, it, it is, is it made by Pixar? Yeah. Yeah, like one of my first films, um, Pixar film in yeah. essence. So that's always my go go-to film when I want to watch some animation. and So you I, rewatch it? You rewatch The Incredibles? Yes, like Aww. multiple times. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I like Ratatouille, but it's, I don't know. I, I always feel like there's something wrong with a rat as the protagonist. <laughs> In a restaurant, right? Yes. No <laughs> that's unsanitary in a yeah. sense. So... That's just my impression. (laughs) All right, we will end there. Again, The Iron Giant plays the Saturday, May 9th at 10 a.m. and Thursday, May 14th at 3 p.m. These screenings are a part of The Picture Show, a family and children's series presented by Midwest One Bank. For more information on The Picture Show, please check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Seymour, an introduction. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to go hiking in Patagonia, ride camels in Morocco, eat sushi in Japan, or learn how to surf in Australia? Stop wondering. Take the first step towards immersing yourself in another culture by visiting the office for study abroad. During the resource room walk-in hours from 9 to 5, you can meet with a peer advisor to start exploring the opportunities that are waiting for you. The University of Iowa sponsors over 140 study abroad programs scattered across nearly every continent, ranging from one week to one year. You can meet general education, major and minor requirements, or earn elective credit towards graduation. You can even combine study abroad with an internship or work abroad after graduation. For more information, come visit the Office for Study Abroad Resource Room in the University Capital Center. That's in the Old Capitol Mall on the first floor next to Beat the Bookstore. Study abroad. Ten years from now, what will you be glad you did? Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Seymour, an introduction. Ever since I saw the preview for this new documentary, I've been describing it as the film where Ethan Hawke stands next to Seymour Bernstein and says, this man can play the piano. (laughs) 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 Catherine, is that a fair description of this film? (laughs) Yes. Um, Except for the fact that everything that Seymour Bernstein does uh, overwhelms the... The stupidity. Ethan <laughs> Hawke standing next to him and saying, let me introduce you as a famous person <laughs> to this other famous person. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, Seymour uh, Bernstein, if you don't know, is an amazing pianist, a successful composer. He's a teacher. He's just an interesting person to hear speak about a lot of things. Uh, within this documentary, we get a biography of Bernstein, Lots of beautiful and melancholy music, a meditation about talent, fear, and fulfillment, and a fairly mystical series of conversations about music and the order of the universe. (laughs) We also get some inane ruminations from Ethan Hawke, the film's director. But if you ignore those, uh, this is an extremely pleasurable film. Hawke's unburdening about acting seems strange next to the life experiences of Bernstein, uh, but the latter is indulgent and patient. His presence is soothing to Hawk and to us as viewers. 
Bernstein's isolation and negotiation with others is a fascinating part of this film. The musician has lived in the same studio apartment for 50 years and finds vast contentment in contemplation. He seems to be constantly recharging from an intense instruction session or conversation. Bernstein's views, uh, Bernstein views his own and others' talent and how um, that talent turn inflects a life are kind of the core of Hawk's curiosity and exploration within the documentary. Uh, performance, affect, anxiety seem to be crucial to talent, uh, but Bernstein argues that these obligations and challenges are the natural forces we must always contend with, just as it is dissonance that makes music uh, really make sense, not just harmony. Uh, the universal language of music provides this universal lesson. So, to begin our discussion of this uh, film with a super simple question, uh, how do my fellow banterers feel about the language of music and how it expands our minds? <laughs> 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 the, um, basically, it, this is not an answerable question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Music is super important. I watching this film was I was just like a wash in all of my childhood and young adult memories of of playing music, uh, which I don't do anymore. Um, and I was never very good at it, um, but I did it for years and years and years. I had piano lessons for years and years and years. I had a piano teacher that was kind of a lot like Seymour Bernstein. Um, I've had them like make me breathe and like hold on to my diaphragm and push down my shoulders, <laughs> like all that stuff we see in the in the film. Like I went through, and I oh, I love music so much, and you like hear these beautiful piano pieces in this film, and you, you know things like Moonlight Sonata, and you just think like, gosh, I want to play that um, so badly, and I always did when I was little, and I was just such a I was such a bad music student. <laughs> I can't explain <laughs> it. It was like an infuriating, frustrating experience for me all those years. Um, so that's how I feel about music in the order of the universe. I, I, I have no order in my universe because I never could play the music <laughs> very well. <laughs> I think you have to have a certain kind of talent or certain level of perception to be able to perceive that kind of order of universe because I, basically I have no knowledge in music whatsoever so like every time I hear a beautiful piece I'll be like oh this is beautiful but I don't know the reason so for me I mean it might have you know a hierarchy or an order but for me that's just a mystery that is hard to decide decipher in that sense mm-hmm. yeah I mean I sort of uh, I certainly have like a similar thing, Leah, where um, I, you know, grew up and there were several instruments tried out. Certain one, the violin was one uh, that went by the wayside. I was in choir, all of those things. Um, but I never really, you know, was like super talented or, <laughs> or anything. But, but I do feel like um, there's this kind of sensation that's always happened when, um, I mean, I'm, I love music and, and lots of different kinds of music, but there's certain pieces that I feel like, ah, they like jolt me and I'll get like goosebumps and it doesn't matter how many times I listen to it also. Like usually it'll like that one section will hit me and I'll still get goosebumps. So I, I feel like in, in a pseudo mystical way, that must be some sort of like, ah, you know, some sort of indication of greater, you know, uh, harmony or greater dissonance or I don't know. something. But like we are talking about music in such abstract terms. Yeah. Can we talk about films in those terms? Like, I don't know, like, what's the thing that touches me in this film? I know. it. it you don't get a scene that, that gives you goosebumps? I mean, I think I'll cycle that analyze myself like and find out the reason mm-hmm. in a sense so i but I, I don't know if i can do the same thing to the music i love i'm just wondering oh like you have you have the tools to be able to analyze the film but you don't have the tools to be able to analyze the music as you were saying before so it's hard for you to yeah i mean i just like because like when we are talking about music we could use such big abstract terms such as harmony, such as dissonance, such as, mm-hmm. you know, this universal correspondences. Mm-hmm. But like, it's it's not applicable to films in that sense, right? That's true. Although I'm thinking of like articles that Eric Romare wrote back in um, his Cahiers de Cinema days. And he talked about music as being such an important art form because it just 
it couldn't be literary in a way that sometimes we like try to force our arts to be mm-hmm. analytical in that way. Mm-hmm. Like we, we kind of like force maybe a semiotic approach to the arts and music. You just can't do that. Like you do just sort of feel it inside and outside of your body. And um, even if you can like read music, that's not the same as like listening to a piece mm-hmm. of music. Um, so maybe there's something special about it. Yeah. And, and I think maybe it is too, too abstract and strange to say like a certain piece of music always reveals the order of the universe, but it's such a like, because music is so subjective, like you, you experience it in your body and some, and everybody has their tastes and sometimes like an oboe, that sounds terrible, (laughs) you know, like, uh, well, that's always true. That's true. But, but then, uh, something like the piano or something like, I don't know, for me, like some, the violin or, or, the piano, like they, the cello. They, they sound amazing, you know, to me, but there's other instruments where I'm like, no, thank you. You know, but other people certainly probably feel the, the harmony in, in those. So I feel like the order of the universe is maybe too much. Maybe it's just the order of like, you feel the order of your own subjectivity, like extremely strongly with something like music. Well, what is the universe if not our own subjectivity, Catherine? <laughs> See? <laughs> Let's get back to the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I do want to kind of mention, so most of the music within the film, as I, as I mentioned before, the it's pretty melancholy in mood. Do you think that this maybe helps us get into a more expansive mindset regarding music more generally? Um, are you guys more profoundly moved by sad or wistful music, or maybe different kinds of mood. I mood think music. yes, the music heard in this film is um, largely melancholic. But the presence of Ethan Hawke is too distracting for uh, <laughs> for me, at least, to feel it's that kind of it's yeah. Slapstick he is. He's like this like comedic counterpoint, and I've. I, like we can argue about whether it's intentional or not. I mean, I don't think he's being intentional, but I think leaving that footage in was intentional on someone's part. Uh, yeah. He, Someone who's like paid he, by Ethan Hawke. <laughs> <laughs> he always drags me down to the everyday, you know, to yeah. the concrete, to the most ordinary. Like, so it's, I mean, it, it has a, a contrast in that sense, but I don't know. How do you feel, Leah? Wait, are we talking about wistful music now or Ethan Hawke? No, Hawk like, or? like just <laughs> the melancholy music in the film in general and, and how does Ethan Hawke serve as a counterpoint to that melancholia? Um, well, I enjoyed a lot of the music in the film. It seemed like maybe they were playing a lot of classical music as opposed to maybe like more Baroque music, which sounds a little bit lighter and more jaunty and more sort of more ready to... To mingle, <laughs> um, which maybe would have suited Ethan Hawke's persona better. <laughs> and I, I also want to talk about the montage sequences. They are the worst in the film. Towards the end, when they suddenly just started like, like it was like people singing, oh, yeah, out of time. I mean, and space. everyone is very ecstatic. That, yeah, that was just the terrible. And Mario Yo was like, "Oh my god, I'm having." A sort of, you know, ecstasy moment. Yeah. You call Yo-Yo Mama Yo-Yo. Is that how we should say his name? Yes, because, I mean, his his last name is Ma. And you say that first, usually? Yeah. Okay. So it's just a reflex reaction. <laughs> <laughs> well, so would this film have been different with, like, a completely unknown director? I mean, obviously, we're talking about, within the film, a certain amount of, like... I'm talking about talent and success, you know? (laughs) And so I feel like, obviously, you know, Ethan Hawke, for whatever our qualms, uh, is like a pretty successful actor and and writer. I mean, he's a novelist. He's a novelist? Yeah, I've read one of his novels. It's pretty all right, actually. (laughs) Really? Um, Really? He's just so inarticulate and sort of vapid sounding in this, right? I mean, he basically (laughs) says, gosh, I'm so successful. I mean, like, materially. (laughs) Like, like, looks-wise. Yeah, I'm famous. I'm at the height of my career. But, like, what does it all mean, Seymour? And Seymour's sort of like... Go on. Go on. <laughs> uh, Let's unpack this. 
I don't know who would have had a more thoughtful approach to this. I mean, I think what's useful about this film is really there's only like two clear times where we see Ethan Hawke sort of talking at length um, or talking to Seymour at length. And the rest of the time, rest of the time, the documentary is structured to have his past students interviewing him, um, mm-hmm. uh, which seems they seem much more reflective and thoughtful and, mm-hmm. and more useful to the terms of this documentary. So someone somewhere along the way in this film made some really smart choices about that. I mean, had the whole thing been... Ethan Hawke interviewing him? No, I mean, this would have been a total disaster. But Ethan Hawke's thoughts on Seymour. (laughs) (laughs) Brutal today. Seymour bursting 101. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll end there. Um, uh, Seymour, an introduction has its last screenings at Film Scene tomorrow, uh, May 7th at 5.30 and 7.30 p.m. So be sure to check it out. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 65 degrees in Iowa City, uh, raining lightly. Tonight, a 30% chance of thunderstorms with a low of 61 degrees. Tomorrow, Thursday, thunderstorms likely with a 60% chance, high of 81 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our third film. Clouds of Sils Maria features Juliette Binoche, Kristen Stewart, and Chloe Grace Moritz in a film about beautiful women who are accustomed to getting everything and anything their hearts desire. Binoche plays Maria Enders, a veteran actress who still has big-budget movie offers pouring in, despite the onset of her 40s and her own creeping sense of expendability in an industry that rewards youth more than any other single virtue. Stewart plays Valentine, Maria's personal assistant, whose position consists of managing phone calls, responding to press inquiries, organizing photo shoots, and, of course, propping up Maria's increasingly tested and fragile ego. And Moritz plays a young actress, Joanne, whose star is on the rise, but whose volatile personal life has given her a Lindsay Lohan-like reputation. Maria's career, we learn, was launched 20 years earlier on the stage when she played a character named Sigrid, opposite an actress in her 40s, who played a character named Helena. Now a hot young director wants to reprise the play with Maria playing the older woman's part, and he's cast Joanne to play Maria's original role of Sigrid. Pettiness of all kinds ensues. The tension in this movie emerges from the interactions of these meta-characters. Binoche is, after all, a successful actress of a certain age, whose younger independent film shoes are being filled by actresses like Kristen Stewart these days. In the meantime, Stewart, after becoming a pop culture icon at the age of 18, is already 25, but only just beginning to recover her less-than-perfect public persona after cheating on her very famous boyfriend with a married man only three years ago. As for Moritz, she's only 18, but Clouds of Sils Maria is her 30th feature-length film. Pretty soon, only infants will be fresh-faced enough to dazzle us at the movies (laughs) and in the tabloids. So let's start our conversation with the question of casting. Catherine Chung-Mean, do you think this film could have been cast with any other trio of actresses, or do you think these three specific women were crucial to the film's dynamic? I think that uh, I think that Kristen Stewart and and Chloe Moretz uh, are wonderfully cast. I mean, uh, there's there's a really mercenary quality to Chloe Moretz that I'm just like, wow! Like <laughs> this whole film, you're like, geez. Um, and and I think it's supposed to be this like view of of Juliet Binoche's character on on this woman, not just her like emergence as a person who's mercenary, you know, in Hollywood, but like this view that older actresses have of younger actresses, maybe Um, that she is threatening. Yeah. That she's somehow threatening and that she's somehow completely morally and, and intellectually opposite from all of the, everything that Julie Binoche stands for, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but Julia Binoche, I think is an interesting choice because I think it maybe could have been, um, somebody else, you know, uh, I think that there's a lot of women in Hollywood and, and in Europe who are probably at this age where there's this 
there's this frustration with facing your own previous persona and what you've grown into and, and how you're seen by the outside world. So I, I was really kind of interested by the choice of Juliet Binoche. I think that she maybe um, could have been somebody else in my head pretty easily, but I think that someone like, I mean, Kristen Stewart and her, the specific arguments that Kristen Stewart makes in the film, which are so tied to her own persona, I think is really fascinating. Um, So I think that those are pretty rigid, maybe casting choices where it's like, wow, great choice, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But Juliette Binoche, I think, um, could have easily been maybe somebody else. I don't know. Maybe I'm being... I don't know. I feel like Julia Binoche's character has to be uh, played by a European actress, especially maybe French actress in that sense, because uh, I'm not being sexist or what, but like French actresses do give me this kind of neurotic impressions, especially with Binoche, Isabelle Hubert, and Julie Delpy. (laughs) Sometimes, (laughs) like, so... So I feel like, I mean, maybe Isabelle Hubert would be better in that sense because uh, the film is definitely about this very uh, neurotic actress that is entering her 40s and um, she's having all these neurotic anxieties about her career. So I feel like that's not something like you can normally see in Hollywood. Like, I mean, Hollywood uh, actresses normally want to uh, maintain its young appearance like because if you show your symptoms of anxiety that means like you are really getting old mm-hmm. so in that sense I feel like European actresses um, are better um, doing this it also just I mean strikes me that Julia Pinoche is like so beautiful and she's aging so beautifully mm-hmm. that it heightens the sense that like youth is all that the youth yeah. have, right? Yeah. Like she's, anybody would want to look like Julia Binoche, but like the one thing that, you know, Chloe Grace Moritz has over her, Kristen Stewart has over her is like just their, their younger age at this point. And, you know, like there's just a sense of like, I don't know. It like puts the value back on the youth, which seems to be like crucial to this tension. But I mean, we also know that Julia Binoche has this great, great career. Like she made so many important films. So that also add to, you know, his, uh, her, her image in this film. So I feel like that sort of history also blends with his, uh, her performance in this film. Yeah. 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 And it is just interesting that like Catherine, as you were saying, all of these, um, Kristen Stewart's character keeps giving an analysis of Moritz's character and all of the things that she's saying are like things that she would be saying about herself. Mm -hmm. Like she, she doesn't subscribe to the conventions of Hollywood. I think that's super cool. Right. And you're just like, Oh my gosh, what would that have been like to be saying those lines out loud? And (laughs) given her history um, of, you know, in theory trying to sort of buck against the, the glossy veneer that she's supposed to have. And trying to inflect, like, basically, you know, uh, very flashy, glossy characters with more soul and depth, you know, which is totally, <laughs> you know, her emergence in the Twilight franchise. Just like, you know, you can just see that the map of all of these arguments fitting so well. Um, and the lines sound so empty. They ring so empty when she tries to say, like, well, she really commits to the darker side of the <laughs> alien character that she's playing in that blockbuster. Isn't that admirable? And like, Julia yeah. Binoche like can't even help it. Like she's just like laughing. Like that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> um, but yeah, you get the feeling that Kristen Stewart. I mean, she. I don't know. She, I wonder if she had fun with the part. I wonder if it made it for her feel a little vulnerable, especially because then the. Um, the the Joanne uh, has the affair too, which is kind of yeah. like a pretty dark turn, and it was something that actually happened in Stewart's life too, which she was clearly not. Uh, you know, she apologized for it and everything. She wasn't um, dismissive when that happened. In theory, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it seems like such a yeah. I can't imagine Kristen Stewart doing like press junkets about this movie, like. How how would you <laughs> ask her questions like so? so. <laughs> Did you find the characters in this film relatable? <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, so I began discussing the extra textual analysis of these characters. However, their meta quality works internal to the film as well. In many of the central scenes, Maria and Valentine are running lines as Helena and Sigrid, and it becomes difficult to discern where the theater scene begins and ends, given the parallels between the Maria-Valentine relationship and the fictional Helena-Sigrid relationship. Did you enjoy the effect of these rehearsal scenes, which you know I have to believe are meant to be a bit confusing for the spectator? Um, so, I mean, the main reference of this film is Persona, right? Because like that's, again, two women mm-hmm. um, enclosing in a faraway place, trying to face each other, trying to explore each other's interiority. So I feel like, in that sense, um, the acting in this film is more playful because um, sometimes we, we, we do detect uh, the signs of transition from reading the lines to their actual life. So uh, in that sense, it's easier to tell when they, uh, they are performing or not. But um, sometimes I feel like the intensity of these lines don't really match with their actual state, like their actual emotional feelings toward each other. So I don't know if this is accurate. Yeah, I mean, I I really loved the kind of escalation points in when it really becomes clear, like, oh, yeah, I mean, Juliet Binoche, or, like, or, you know, Maria Enders is like a force to be reckoned with actress. Like, there's these moments where she dives into the performance. And of course, it's it's difficult to kind of maybe suss out where her... Her, where the source of her emotion is coming from, you know, whether it's this interaction with with uh, Valentine or whether it's a, um, you know, a frustration with the role or if it's, you know, her previous experience. But like, I don't know, it, it was awesome to see the rehearsal scenes because it was so like kind of back and forth in that emotional realm because they'd snap out of it and, and kind of snap into it again. But um, But one thing I was really interested by is that with the rehearsal scenes, Kristen Stewart's character says later, like, you don't need me to be running lines with you. I'm your personal assistant. Like what, (laughs) what are you getting out of that? You know? Um, And, and I think it is because she wants to explore and provoke the relationship that they have with each other um, Mm -hmm. via this rehearsal. It's why else would she be putting that on an assistant? Like, it seems like a pretty intense thing to be putting someone through, and then their um, their extended conversations about the meaning of the play and mm-hmm. and how like they they have this breakdown of of communication over you know basically a me- the meaning of of these things is really it's so interesting because because what's what's Maria Enders's like investment in having her assistant care whether or not she's making the right meaning out of, out of a play. It's, it's, it is like a very interesting extended relationship. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and this kind of relates to something else I was thinking about. The director of Clouds of Sils Maria is the French filmmaker Olivier Assayas. His previous work includes Irma Vap from 1996. And that film stars the Chinese movie actress Maggie Chung, who's playing a version of herself in a fiction film about remaking the famous silent film series Les Vampires, which is to say Irma Vep is another film about actresses and acting and the blurry distinctions between art and life. And this is maybe just a more general question. Why do you suppose cinema is an art form that seems so well-suited to this level of reflexivity? I don't have a, I don't have a perfect answer for it. I mean, I think that all, I mean, certainly cinema emerged in, in an era, right, where there's a convergence of of um, art forms and and literary methods and and expansion of technique and all sorts of things like that. So, I mean, lots of scholars have pointed out that like cinema could never be just cinema. It's always been, you know, like a like a convergence media form. Um, so maybe that has always 
allowed it to kind of dip in and out, you know, of the kind of theater world or of the world of television or of the world of literature, you know, that it, it's, it's just inherently always already thinking about that because it just emerged during this crucible of, of forms. Um, I'm mm. just taking a historical angle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I mean, in the case of Irma Web, I think it is made uh, in the in this period where uh, where cinema was going through all kinds of transformations. So we, I mean, uh, we have video, we have film, we have uh, digital. I mean around that period. So in a sense, it is playing with these different textures. And Maggie Chung was found by Asayas uh, in one whole campy horror B film he watched like, I don't know, tw- five or three years ago before making uh, before making Urban Web. So in a sense, it's, uh, it's about different textual quality um, interacts with um, different kinds of reflexivity and how does that push us to think about cinema as a medium? So for example, uh, I think the 90s is, uh, is a very important period for this kind of experiment. I mean, compared to now. So I, I, I don't know. So I feel like um, it is also because cinema has this deep relation with uh, theater, like cinema was born out of theater in a sense, like the star system was inherited from the theater. So, um, so performance is always such an important component in different films. Yeah, I think, I mean, my gut feeling is that it has something to do with the star system. Chang mean, as you're saying, like, we always want to sort of see cinema is always two dimensional. And then we always want to see like that third dimension of these personas that we fall in love with on the screen. And so there was that, that bit in this film, this idea of seeing what is a photo shoot look like when you show up and they put you in a Chanel dress and what does it look like to sort of have dinner with the mayor of a town just because you're a famous person. And what is it like to have wealthy writer friends who have, beautiful homes in the Alps. Um, There seems like there's some element of that there as well. Let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our discussion of Clouds of Sils Maria. Underwriting support for KRUI is provided in part by the Angler Theater, a community arts center and performance space that highlights the talents of local performers, artists, ensembles, and hosts regional, national, and international touring performances. Angler is located at 221 East Washington Street in Iowa City. For more information, dial 319-668-253 or go to www.engler.org. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Clouds of Sills Maria. So Catherine and Chung Min, much of this film takes place in Europe's beautiful Alps. And it's not, of course, the first film to feature a Maria in the Alps. (laughs) The other one is, of course, The Sound of Music. And in that film, the Alps represent freedom. For both Maria as a singing nun, and then more crucially for the entire Von Trapp family as they escape the Nazis. How did the backdrop of these huge, impressive, perhaps looming mountains influence the mood and tone of clouds of Sils Maria? I felt like these, I mean, obviously it's such gorgeous backdrop that you you want to be like climbing around in it, which they do to a certain extent. You know, there's- They climb around a lot. Yeah, Yeah. actually. (laughs) Yeah, they go on hikes, which I'm just like, yes, let's do that. Um, (laughs) So in a way it's this, it seems to be this very like mimicry pleasurable experience (laughs) watching it for some of it. But then otherwise I think that, I mean, it's supposed to communicate this like kind of isolation and and the kind of taxing journey um, that it takes to like get there. Certainly- via trains or via these winding like hairpin streets, which I would absolutely vomit um, <laughs> if if I was trying to drive up those um, streets. So it does kind of get this like 
the kind of epic journey to get there and, and the kind of isolation once you're there, I think that's also being capitalized on here. I think this um, amazing natural landscapes um, are there because they catalyze a certain kind of tension between two characters because uh, you have the immensity of these natural landscapes and you also have this kind of um, dramatic tension between the two characters. So uh, it's it's like their emotional state uh, is um, going out to immerse the whole environment in that sense. So I feel like it's... Uh, the, the natural landscape in this film is properly used uh, to accentuate that kind of dramatic uh, relationship they are going they are going through. There's a sense constantly that I mean, filming in I mean, those are massive mountains, and so they create all of these like really high horizon lines, or sometimes the horizon line just like disappears from the the you know the 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 shot and. And you do get all of these scenes repeatedly where two characters, mostly it's um, Valentin and um, Maria, like hiking up to get above it, like hiking to get to the view, to get literally above the clouds, which is sort of this ongoing thing about trying to see this snake cloud. Um, And it's like they're like trying to come up for air or something. Like they're just trying to get some perspective constantly, even though they are really hemmed in by by each other, by their own psychology, by their own neuroses. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's accurate. So not like literally like the opposite of how <laughs> the mountains are working in, yeah. in the sound of and music. And it's like nature is the contrast to artifice or theater in this film, right? In that sense, like nature is not man-made. You don't have to have that kind of... Um, I know, fake appearance to to pretend you are the real thing. I don't know. I feel like um, it's there for some reason, but I, I'm not so sure about its role uh, in this film. Like, I mean, compared to Force Majeure, because you you, mm. you, you you just mentioned this film, and I mean, the nature in Force Majeure is there because uh, it, it, it ridicules you know, the the human drama in that sense, because like we have this immense natural landscape, but like uh, people are fighting for, you know, trivial matters. Well, and it kind of taunts humans, yes, right? right? Like it's like uh, these ski resorts are all about like humans trying to control nature and it's like just nature. Just constantly like being, it. Like, yeah, yeah, nature's yeah. just constantly like, nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> gonna make you look like a fool (laughs) a fool (laughs) well but this like i was so like entranced by um by the kind of snake phenomenon uh through the mountains the mountain pass um because it is such like it's like a phenomenon that you have to you have to like catch it's not something that that you're just gonna where the clouds pour into the valley, you have to be there. Yeah, it's the a right per- day. Particular kind of weather. It's a particular kind of perspective that you're getting. So it is this kind of manufactured view of nature that's happening too, um, where you're like catching a phenomenon versus um, something like Force Majora, which is like it. It is this kind of maybe hubris of feeling like, oh, nature's managed. Cool, <laughs> you know, um, and it kind of blowing back in your face but yeah nature's for my own enjoyment um yeah all right well uh we'll end there again clouds of sills maria opens at film scene this friday may 8th for a complete list of showtimes please check out film scenes website icfilmscene.org before we wrap up i want to point out that this is the last episode of bijou banter for this academic year It is very sad. Uh, we'll be back next year. But before we sign off, I'd like to ask you guys, Catherine Changmin, what were your favorite moments of this year's banter? What was your favorite film discussed? And or what was your favorite discussion of a film on this show? Favorite moments? I think I mentioned this, but, but I still believe Obvious Child is a lost gem because we just saw a train wreck the other day at film oh, yeah, scene. We did. And we all agree that Obvious Child 
is such a better film. Do you know I went back and rewatched Obvious Child uh-huh. um, right after seeing Trainwreck to see uh-huh. if it would like hold up in my imagination? Uh-huh. And actually, I mean, still totally lost gem. I think it got overlooked um, by a lot of critics, but um, it didn't seem quite as impactful given how much I've um, submerged myself in Amy Schumer comedy lately, (laughs) (laughs) which is like works in a similar vein of like women's kind of confessional, Uh uh, comedy, uh, which is so, you know, it's so refreshing and I feel always like super thirsty for that. But, um, it was interesting to kind of like be like, did Jenny Slate do something that's like above and beyond? And in some ways she did absolutely. Um, but I, it didn't have quite the punch, um, Mm -hmm. now that I've been watching so much of this we're, now that we're in the era of Amy Schumer, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I I agree that that Obvious Child is probably, I mean, my favorite, like full on favorite film of the year. Um, as far as I think that was the first episode we ever did. Really? Really? Yeah. I'm Maybe that's positive. part of our. our <laughs> I don't even think we have a recorded version of that episode. I think it was like the first time when we got together. To- yeah. Inaugural episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I I do uh, really remember. It always sticks in my head. Um, our discussion of uh, the internet's own boy with Kembrew when he came in. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that, that was really like interesting and and important conversation. And um, I remember that. Other than that, maybe Die Hard. Steve Marquez. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about Die Hard. Realizing that it was a little bit more problematic. Yeah. Nine-year-old mind remembered. <laughs> when we shattered Steve Markley's dreams. <laughs> the backstory of the cop is that he shot and killed a child. <laughs> a child. Um, yeah. I was, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed our discussion of drives. Um, oh, yeah, because mostly because I think I was like the most giggly I've been in a decade <laughs> trying to talk about that film with a straight face. And also because that's when I wrote the line and read the line, uh, seeing Christina Hendricks in blue jeans is about as alarming <laughs> as watching her head get blown off <laughs> shortly thereafter, which still makes me laugh. <laughs> that is a but great like, line. I feel like we spend too much time discussing all the beautiful faces. Um, this that- is what the star system is. <laughs> this is what cinema is made. Even when you're talking about independent cinema and foreign film, it's still just beautiful yeah. faces. Edward Snowden, beautiful, whatever. Yeah. I just, just rewatched real this human before today. He is not, I don't understand. You guys are both so like, no questions asked. Edward Snowden is a beautiful man. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> He's sort of, I mean, he's clean shaved and he's like, he has this, I don't know, a learned quality about him. Like he's smart and he's, um, tech savvy, I guess. Yeah, tech savvy. <laughs> like, I don't your know. phone like yeah. a second. <laughs> I mean, he subverts our usual imagination of technological nerds. Well, we have to say that probably most people find him, uh, attractive because his you know, Oliver Stone avatar is Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, in the in the new movie that's being made. Uh, oh, oh! I thought you were just like <laughs> tapping into Oliver Stone's like no imagination They're, and like I, everyone it. knows that <laughs> <laughs> if Oliver Stone were to imagine Edward Snowden, <laughs> he'd pick JGL. <laughs> I had no idea that that was happening. Um, I also have fond memories of trying to discuss. Uh, What's it called? The one I love? Yeah. With yeah. uh um, Elizabeth Moss. And- yeah. And because we didn't want to spoil anything, like we could only talk about maybe like the first five minutes of that film. <laughs> Basically. Basically. <laughs> so then in the third shot. Yeah. Um <laughs> Well it's it's the similar situation with Wild Tales, because like you cannot That's true. We had a hard time with that any- one too. Say anything about that film. I also have a really fun memory of listening to the only show that I wasn't present for in all of our first 31 episodes um, when uh, Catherine and Caitlin uh, and Pat talked about Mommy mm-hmm. um, and Purple Rain. And I, I listened live and I was just so excited <laughs> listening to them and thinking like, what a great show. People should listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, guys. Uh, one last announcement for our listeners. This Saturday, May 9th, is the final Bijou After Hours screening with uh, Back to the Future showing at Film Scene at 11 p.m. We hope to see you there on Saturday night. If you're interested in in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org, to learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and long-standing role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City. Please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today and all of the other days. All of the other days. <laughs> Can't wait till next year. Chang Min, it's a pleasure, as always. Love to be here. <laughs> I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next year. <laughs>